and we're introduced to the Eser Makais in this week's parsha. at least most of them. And the Pasuk says by the Makah of Tzvardeya, Vatal HaTzvardeya, the Tzvardeya rose up against Egypt. And Rashi brings the famous Chazal that Tzvardeya Achas Haisa, really it was one frog. Tzvardeya could, the simple Taichin Tzvardeya is that there were many frogs, but it was referred to in the singular as we would refer to sheep and fish, all in Lashon Yachid, even though it refers to many. But Rashi says that there is a literal translation also that has to be reckoned with. Vatal HaTzvardeya means there was one singular frog. Vahayu Makinaisa. And the Egyptians, in their anger, would hit that frog. The matezas nechalim nechalim. And at every time the Egyptians would hit that frog, the frog would split into two, and then into four, and then into eight, etc., until the Tzvardeyas filled the entire land of Egypt. And the obvious question is that it makes no sense, this Chazal. Because how do you explain the process? What would the rationale be for normal, thinking, sensible adults to hit a frog, see that the frog thereby splits into two, and then hit it again and then it splits into four, and it keeps splitting more and more until it gets into the millions and into the trillions, after a while, a person that's rational would say, okay, let's stop hitting the frog. Now might be a good time to stop hitting the frog. It makes no sense. The frog is not dying. All that's happening is it's getting more and more frogs all over our bedrooms, all over our living rooms, all over our kitchens. It's enough frogs. We had enough frogs. So maybe if we just cool it a little bit and stop hitting the frogs, maybe that would be a good way to halt the plague. But yet, they didn't. They continuously hit that frog over and over and over again, despite the fact that they clearly saw before their eyes that the frog was splitting, multiplying. It was doing no good. If anything, it was doing a lot more harm than good by hitting it. This is the famous question of the stipler. The stipler going brought this question up in a safe at Birchas Peretz and his answer is better even than the question as strong as the question is the answer is very very descriptive of human nature we're going to learn from this Makov Tzvardeya and that's why Chazal no doubt taught us this in order to teach us about ourselves and to teach us about our habits the stipler says that the anger that the Yidin, that the Egyptians rather displayed and exhibited during the Makov Tzvardeya teaches us about anger because what happened was that 
they were frustrated. You have a frog that's coming on your land. It's scary. I remember when I was a child, there were these, um, it was very, very low-tech um, um, science fiction, I would call it, I guess. You know, but way before anything cool in the graphics world came out, they had these very old Japanese films, and like Godzilla and, and others, and basically the premise was that there were these huge you know, insects or lizards or something that was attacking Tokyo cities in Japan, and you have all these screaming Asians running and, and you know, scared and getting out of its way, and it's like, and it's real, like, it was so crude, like the, 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 the graphics, it was like so obvious that it was done in the studio, and it was like, you know, it wasn't at all realistic, but it was very popular. It was the only thing to watch on TV. So, um, and with Slavdil, you know, it's a frustrating thing. You, you have this big giant frog coming over Cairo, downtown Cairo, and you want to get rid of it. So what do you do? There were, you know, you start, you hit it. It's very scary, and it's very frustrating, and it's very, it, it, it provokes a lot of anger. So you hit it. The frog splits into two. A chutzpah, the frog is splitting into two. You know, we have to take back our country. And it's, you hit it again and again and again, and the more you're hitting it, the more this thing is multiplying and the angrier you're getting because now it's really frustrating if one frog was really you know bothersome imagine how many 20 are and 50 and 100 and so in your anger you want to vent you don't just want to go home and say alright let's let the frog be you feel that you have to do something you have to right the wrong this is not right that we have a big frog invading our country and we have to do something so what do you do you hit it and the more you're hitting it, the more it's causing sorrows for you, but that doesn't matter at the time. Because we're so wrapped up in our anger and in our insistence on doing something, on responding and settling the score in one way or another that it's true that it's causing me more harm than good. I know that by hitting that frog, it's creating more chaos and many more frogs, and they're just like multiplying to a degree that we'll never be able to control them. But still, in my anger, I do things that are irrational. That is the very nature of anger. Anger, by definition, is something that you can't control. Once a person has anger, he's liable to do things that are the most irrational, foolish things that a human being could ever possibly do if he was thinking but that's precisely the point. The anger doesn't allow a person to think. The stipler says, had the people just seen the frog and gone home and said, listen, it's not working. We split it, we hit it and it splits. Probably it's going to split a million more times. Let's just call a truce, go home, and let's hope that this frog somehow you know, meets an untimely death. That would have been the best way to deal with it. They couldn't physically make that decision because... They were so angry with the situation, the frustration led them to do something which is absolutely insane, and that's to keep on hitting it. But that's what anger is, says the stifler. Anger is irrational, which causes nice, normal people to act crazy and against their own, against their own good. They do things and they live to regret it. There are people, Lamashal, that they get angry and you know somebody at work 
Um, was it nice to them? The boss said something that was, you know, critical of him. What does the person do? It happens every day. The person says, you're just telling me that, you know, that I didn't do my job, or I did my job right, and I'm, I'm quitting this job. And like, okay, once you say those words, you're out. You can't go back. So you come home, you know, and now, you know, you took the subway home and you have time to think about it. And all of a sudden you say, what in the world did I do? I had a good job. I have a family to feed. Because I got a little anger inside of me, couldn't I just close my mouth? Couldn't I just not react? So my boss criticized me. So what's going to be? So let him criticize me. But give me a paycheck at the end of the week. Why did I quit? And you have to come home and tell your wife that you quit and that you have no job and that you have no way to support the family. And maybe if you would have thought about that, you would have stopped yourself. But you couldn't stop yourself because you were so enraged. You needed to vent. You needed to get back at your boss. You needed to do something so like dramatic that whatever happens, I don't care, I'm not thinking right now about what's going to be, you know, a minute later from now. I'm just thinking about right now. I think the best example of the irrationality of anger is, is what's called road rage. I don't know if any of you have it. I, I have occasionally, you know... I'm a very nice person. Everybody knows I'm mild-mannered. I'm fine. I'm good. But um, but sometimes, you know, if a guy cuts me off on a highway, you know, I, you know, it's not so. Uh, you know, I, you, I think it's instinctive. It, it, you know, there's something to you know getting upset and then like chasing after them and like flashing your flashing your lights and you know honking your horn and you know. But people do this every day, you know, on the highways, and very often they get themselves killed. I mean, you know, you do it one second, it's not the end of the world. If you honk and you flash your lights, but like if you, I did it once. I was, uh, it's good, uh, it's good therapy for me today. Um, I, um, there was a, um, a guy cut me off, like, on, on the, uh, going on the ramp, like, onto the Brooklyn Bridge. It was many, many, many years ago, like last year. I'm joking. Um, so I was with my wife. It was before we had kids, and I was like really upset because the guy like cut me off. He almost hit me, and like so I, you know, and then he speeds up. So I, I'm speeding, and like I'm honking him or whatever, and like I'm trying to like get, and all of a sudden like the worst thing happens. There was like a traffic jam, so like both of our cars like pulled up side by side one another. You don't want to see the guy that you're having road rage against. You know, you want to just like, you know, pretend it's like an anonymous person. You don't want to make a Salah Shem for yourself. And like, we pulled up side by side and I didn't know what to do because we were stuck. We weren't. We both weren't going anywhere. This is a true story. You can ask my wife. I had a bag of potato chips in the car. So like, I rolled down the window and I said, you want a potato chip? <laughs> so... That's okay, buddy. It's okay. But you know, road rage. That's you know, that was a good, that was a happy ending for a road rage story. But like a lot of times, that fun was fun. You know, there was a not happy end. That guy could have had a gun. That guy could have you know, been, you know, been much bigger than me. And uh, you know, you never know what happens. But like at the time, it seems like 
you know, normal, even in a really abnormal sort of way. I have to take revenge. What do you have to take revenge? Did the guy cut you off? Did he mean to cut you off? Maybe yes, maybe no. But so, and if he didn't mean to cut you off, does it make sense to start getting into like this whole car chase with him through the streets of Manhattan? Like the, you know, what, what's 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 gonna? What do you want? What's the end game? There is no end game. But you just have to like he did something wrong to me. I have to settle the score. I don't care if it's gonna, you know, you don't think, you know, you have a family of like, you have little kids in the back seat, you're still going after the guy. I mean, it's Meshagaz. But this is what people do every single day, and, and very often it ends tragically. What's the answer? The answer is that it's not that the guy that, was, that had road rage is like a, is, is a crazy guy. He might be a very normal, sane guy. But something happens in your brain when you get angry, when you feel you've been really wronged, and you could do, like, the craziest things, like things that you normally would never do. You're a very nice guy, you're tame, you never scream at anybody in your life, but somebody, like, does something wrong to you, all of a sudden you get into, like, a different persona, and you become absolutely insane. And you do things that are highly irrational and that are self-destructive. All because of this midah that we all have inside of us called pass. Now I did a little research into the physiological nature of this. Why is it that, meaning there has to be a chemical reason for why a person would do such crazy stuff when he gets angry. So I found in a certain book, I'll read you one paragraph, it's very interesting. He says, the purpose of anger, this is purely scientific, the purpose of anger is to protect us when we are in physical danger. When we experience anger, many physiological changes take place in our circulatory system. Blood flows to where it is needed the most to defend ourselves from injuries. At the same time, less blood flows to our brain, and with it, less oxygen causing our thinking not to be clear. We react impulsively and say and do things we regret. That's a scientific taich in the cycler. Why does this happen? Is it just um, that this is what Midas Reis does to a person? No. There's a lot of Midas Reis. Gaiva, you know, a person has Gaiva. Sometimes it leads a person to do, you know, some things that are good. But, you know, you're not going to, just because you're about Gaiva, doesn't mean that you're going to start, you know, chasing after a guy at 80 miles an hour, quitting your job. But Kaas does something, there's a physical reaction with Kaas. There's, there's something's happening to you when you get so angry that you can't control your, your rage. And the way that scientists explain it is that when you are in danger, when you feel, let's say, let's go back to the road rage, when you have somebody that's about to you know, drive your car off the road, you know, your body starts getting very nervous. Your body starts getting scared because you feel that this guy, you know, is, is endangering your life. And when your life gets endangered, when you feel in any way threatened, there is like a fight or flight choice that the body has to make. And all of the body's physical activities get ready for, for blood. So, meaning they understand that when you're going to, if you're going to fight... It's very possible that you're going to, you know, to bleed. And so the blood races. It's Mamusha Godless Haberi that the, the body knows to send blood to the places that you're going to need it. But 
if there's more blood going to different parts of your anatomy that are going to be in need of blood, if you should fight, so the brain is deprived of blood, and if you're not having blood, enough blood in your brain, that means you're not going to have the oxygen that the brain needs to think rationally. And so, punct during anger, when you need that oxygen the most to make, you know, to, to think rationally, to think clearly, you can and so there's a, there's a physiological reason behind this type. It's not just a chayk. It's not something that we don't understand. There's a reason for it. But obviously, just because there's a reason for it, and by the way, that's why they say that you should count to ten. You know, if you ever get upset, you should count to ten. You know, why should you count to ten? Because if you count to ten, that's basically allowing the body to get back to rational thinking. What happens after 10 seconds? I'm, still, I'm not mad? I'm still mad, but, I'm, but at least by then, the body already can reassess the, the, the danger that threatens it. And so, no, it's nishkeferlach, I'm not going to bleed so much. And now you can get blood back to your brain. And now the brain, the brain has oxygen, it can, it can think a little bit clearer. But at the time, the shas mice, when you get upset, when you are in that moment of anger, your blood is not in your brain. There's all the blood races out of your brain to other parts of the of the human body, and the brain cannot think straight. It cannot think clearly, and it will do the stupidest, craziest, most irrational things in the world during these few seconds of anger. I want to just add another dimension. Besides for you know the the stifler and besides for the for the physical reason behind anger and the obvious obviously the need to somehow control this, I want to just add another dimension to explain a little bit how we could become so so have such like an out of body experience and like not be ourselves for those moments that we're getting angry. You know, these are the parshas of, of Yitzhiya Mitzrayim, and, you know, it sort of is like a little prep for, for Pesach time and Haggadah Shal Pesach. And in the Haggadah, one of the highlights is, of course, the Dalit Banim. There are four sons. Keneged Arba Banim Dibra Taira. There's a Chacham, and there's a Rasha, there's a Tam, there's Shene Yedei Lisha. And I've seen the Farshim that explain that although we are brought up to believe that these are four separate individuals, the truth of the matter is that they're really all one individual. It's really one person that the Torah is addressing each and every one of us. Sometimes we're a Chacham. A lot of times we're very smart. Right now, we're in Beis Medrash. We're very smart. We're learning. We're hearing new things. We're growing, we're B'nai Taira, we're Chachamim. But sometimes we know that we're not always so proud of what we are. When we're in the base Medrash and we're in Yeshiva and we're doing good, it's wonderful. But sometimes we have a part of us that could be a Russia occasionally. We act differently sometimes where we are, who we're talking to, if we're alone in our room, sometimes we do things that we wouldn't ever do in a base medrash in public. 
the same person that's a Chacham could very often at the same time within have a Russia. And that same person could be a Tom. Sometimes we have moments that we're very simple and we're very naive. Even if we're Chachamim, sometimes sometimes we can get really gullible and simple and oversimplify matters. And sometimes we're Shani Yedelishal, sometimes we don't know even how to ask a, a question. But all of these personas are within each and every one of us. A human being is very, very complex. A human being has many layers, like an onion, you know, you could peel an onion and have many, many layers of skin. That's how a human being is. There's not one person that we are. It's too simple to say that we are one person. We are many people that are wrapped up in one. I saw a, a great Yisoyed once from Reb Chaim Bital. Reb Chaim Bital said something, and when I saw it, I understood a lot about life, and I want to share it with you. Reb Chaim Bital says that every single person is created from an element. There's four major elements in the world. There is Esh, and there's Mayim, and there's Ruach, and there's Afer. There's fire and water, wind, and dust. Those are basically the four major elements from which the world was created, in terms of matter. And Rechaim Mital, with his great Kabbalistic approach to things, says that every single person is a different one of these elements. A person that's Aish, what does that mean, Aish? If I am made of Aish, that means I am one of those personalities that are always alive and on fire and I'm busy and I'm doing and I'm building. That's like, he's on fire. You know, that's an expression, right? Oh my gosh, that guy, he's mamish on fire. He's like, he's on a tear. He's doing like crazy things. That's a person that's Aish. He's like super highly energetic, highly ambitious, highly accomplished. He doesn't stop. He's a masmid and he's a builder and he's a doer and he's a shaker and he's moving and he's active. That's somebody that's created from Aish. A person that's created from Mayim, says of Chaim Vital, is a person that Mayim represents Taiva. Again, these are Kabbalistic concepts that I don't claim to know, but I'm just giving you Rashi Prakim, basically what it means. That a person, sometimes people are very big Bali Taiva. And all day long they're talking about, you know, I went to a great restaurant last night, I saw this great movie, and I'm going to Florida for midwinter vacation, I got this great belt, you like my belt? Those are people that are very, very Taiva-oriented. They're very into materialism. That's Mayim. Then there's, there's Ruach. Ruach are people that are more spiritual. And, you know, they're, they're you know, the people that are very, uh, you know, they're very, um, I don't know, you know, they're, they're always very, you know, growth-oriented and talking about maybe God or talking about, you know, about peace and, you know, liberal, like that. Ruach, it's like very, you know, ephemeral, very spiritual, very, on a very, you know, very, living very high. And then there are people that are offer. Offer are people that are lazy. Right? Just like offer is like in the ground, 
So those are people, they don't really want to do much. They're not, you know, they're not big workers, and they're not dreamers, they're not builders, they're not even balitaiva. All they want to do is just sleep. They basically want to sleep, you know, you ask them after, after intercession, what'd you do the whole intercession? I was holding down the couch. That's what I was doing the whole intercession. That's a, you know, that's, that's a different type of person. When I saw this Reb Chaim Mital, by the way, suddenly I began to have a lot of Menuchas HaNefesh. Because, you know, what you'll see in Mitzvah Hashem when you, have, when, you, when you have a family, that, you know, you have different types of children. And you think that, well, these kids came from the same father and the same mother, so they should all be identical. You know, so if let's say your first kid was like a super overachiever, and then your next kid, all of a sudden, like you're expecting also to, you know, bring, be bringing home hundreds and being the captain of the basketball team and being like, you know, the star, uh, you know, whatever it is, and being rah rah rah, and this kid's like lazy bum. And then you have another. Not that any of my kids are not lazy, but right, for But um, but then you have another kid that's you know that's that's sort of very into materialism. Now your other kids weren't so into materialism. They were like you know they're very like low maintenance. And as you have one kid that's high maintenance, they need like to get the latest chapstick and the latest clothing and you know makeup and this and that. And you can't understand like, where are these kids coming from? Like what's up? Like how come there's no like. You know, you can't, there's, every kid is different. Like, what, what's up with that? You know, you want your kids to be like clones of each other. You know, assuming your first kid is good, you know, you just want them all to come out just the same way and have, and you have no idea, like, what's happening here? And you think maybe I'm getting older, maybe I'm bringing them up the wrong way, and I'm, I can't relate anymore. And then you see this in Kaimi Town, it's all of a sudden it's like, wow, you have that moment of like realizing that every child. Has it is created from just because they're from you and your wife doesn't mean that you know that they all are created from the same element. Every single person in the world is created from a different element. Sometimes, sometimes you can have all the kids that are the same. Sometimes you see families and they're all like all the kids look alike, act alike. They're all like this you know exactly identical family because maybe they're all created from that same element. But Reb Chaim Mital just says that. You know, it's, it's, it's not the way it is. Every single person, even in the same family, is created differently. And, you know, it's very interesting to be able to, like, identify yourself by which element you have. You know, and you have to, that doesn't mean that you can't change, but it does add a lot to the, you know, to your understanding of yourself. If you find that, like, how come it is not that I'm, you know, I'm so, lazy and lethargic and like my my siblings weren't that way you should know it's because not it doesn't give you a head there but it just says that you know this is what your challenge in life is this is what you were created from even the great Panavit Shirov this is an amazing thing the Panavit Shirov was the God Ladar and he was the builder of the Dar he created Panavit and many yeshivas and all the yeshivas in the world in some form or another I guess you know, owe a lot to the Panovich Arab who built Panovich after the Muhammad. Panovich Arab ran around the whole world create fundraising to build Panovich and to maintain Panovich and to sustain it. He married a very, um, very big Kamen Chacham's daughter. I think he, he married the Vilkamir Rav's daughter. And the Vilkamir Rav, you know, heard that he was an Eloi, and he was, 
he heard that he was a, a huge Tamachacham, a tremendous Adam Gadol, and with Midas, which he had. And then he got married, and the Vilkim Rub wanted his son to sit and learn in Kiowa. But like he found that his son, instead of doing that, he was like, you know, he was like starting yeshivas and starting a kailo and so he said, like, I didn't marry you off to my daughter, you know, to be this builder type. I want you to sit and learn. I'm supporting you. I want you to sit and learn in Kailo. And the story goes, the legend has it that the Panovich Rav told his father-in-law that if you would lock me in a room, in a basement, with a million svarim, with all my svarim and all my food needs, he said, I would... I would find some window and bust out of that basement because that's not how I'm built. I, I love learning. He was a genius. He was an eagle. He didn't have to maybe learn, you know, he, he finished Shasta and probably by the time he was 14, literally. But he just felt inside of him that he was designed differently. Like he needed, he was a builder. He wasn't somebody that was able to get Sipuk from sitting and learning Yan Malayla alone. He wanted, he knew that he had a higher calling in his mind to build Tyra and to be able to spread Tyra to the masses. And he wasn't, it wasn't enough for him to be able to just sit and learn. He needed to take that ability that he had and that drive and, and do something with it in an active way because he was H. He was fired. There are people that are fired. If he was Ruach, he would have been able to be just happy sitting and, and that would have probably, you know, been great for him, but a very big loss for Kuala Yisrael. So the Abishta put Aish in him to be able to have that passion, to be able to go and spread tire to the universe. But the point is that every single person has their own element. But the good news is that just because you have one element, that's your main element. But every single person, just like connected our Bob bottom Dibra Tyra, just like we have all four people inside, we also have four elements inside. Every single person, even if your primary element is Aish, but if you dig deep enough, you'll find that you have a little bit of an axlan in you. And you have a little bit of a of, of ruach in you, and you have taiva in you. Every person has that. Well, you think a person that's a big Rosh Shiva doesn't have any any taiva? The Gemara says, Everybody's human. There's a Yitzhahara that everybody has to have taiva. There's a Yitzhahara for atzlus. People sometimes, you know, I'm just not in the mood. You know, there's a book out in the hallway about burnout. If somebody, you know, if somebody's writing a book about burnout, vice versa, there is, it's a problem. And it is a problem. A lot of times people that are, you know, even if you're a big masmid, sometimes once in a while, you know, you have experiences that I just, I, I, I can't. I'm just, I'm burned out. And that's, it's not good, it's not bad, it's just human. That's what it is. And you have to figure out a way, maybe you buy the book if you're experiencing that, you have to, you know, figure out a way to, to overcome that. But it's human. Even if you're an ish, even if people that are really high-producing individuals, highly successful individuals, sometimes they need to chill, they need to, to, to relax a little bit. That's what Bein Asmanim, by the way, is all about. When I was learning in Yeshiva, there wasn't a Bein Asmanim in the middle of a, in the middle of the winter. It would, have, it would have been really, really welcome because sometimes there were these winters Manim when winter was really winter and it was snowing, you know, up to, uh, you know, up to your up to your waist. You know, you come out every day, you're, you're shoveling or whatever. It would have been really nice in Yeshiva sometime to be able to, in the middle of a long winter's month, have a, have a two-week hiatus. We didn't have that. We went straight, and sometimes it was very, very hard. 
but you have it. So if you have it, then use it. Enjoy it. Make make time, you know, to learn every day and make time to relax and to enjoy and to be able to, you know, recharge your batteries a little bit. But every single person needs to understand that we have a lot inside of us. There are many different personas. If a person thinks that, oh, I'm one person, it's not true. I had a Rebbe, one of my closest Rebbeim, who I speak about a lot, and he was, uh, he was Nifter, very young, but he really changed the course of, of my life and many other of my friends' lives in 7th and 8th grade. His name was Ramesha Fruchtem. So, Besaif Yamov, he called me into his house in Brooklyn. And we were schmoozing in his office in his study. And he, this was years after I had him as a rabbi, but I was learning in Chaim Berlin, and he lived nearby, and he was a big Chaim Berliner himself. So anyway, he, he called me into his office, and he, we were just talking about, I guess, random things. And he said to me, says, Moshe, says, how many people are you? How many people are you? So I said, Rebbe, you know, I, I like to believe that I'm one person. I'd like to believe that I'm, you know, I'm one. So he says, no. He says, you're as many people as the amount of people that you know. And at the time I was a kid, you know, I was a teenager, I didn't really understand what he meant. But the older I get, the more I appreciate what he meant. Every single person, and you could judge for yourself, when you're talking to different people in life, I think it's generally so, it's generally true, that we're different based on who we're talking to. So if you're talking to your roommate, you sort of wear one persona, right? Oh, you're my roommate, he's like, uh, he's cool, he's with it, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna act cool and with it. Then you come, let's say, to base manager Chabrusa, is like, let's say, a very starker guy, and you like put on a different persona. Like now you're you're more, you know, you're more you're into learning and you're more proper and this and that. And then, you know, and then your Rebbe calls you over and in front of your Rebbe, you know, you're acting a little bit different, you're acting very, you know, very from, very yeshivish, very, you know, you, a different way. And you go home to your parents, you're, you know, you revert back to, you know, you regress into your childhood persona and you act a certain way that you did when you were a kid. And then you go to work maybe and you act a certain way there and in camp you're a certain way. Every person, whether you are able to understand this or not, whether even if you'll agree with it or not, but there's definitely some degree of truth that we're as many people as the people that we are with. Because every single person, we sort of adapt to their personality and we change ourselves and we change our colors like a chameleon, you know, to be able to be able to fit into a certain chavra. If I'm with chavra A, that's really, you know, fun, I'll be fun. If I'm with chavra B, that's more, I find it with myself. Like, you know, I've lived in Queens here for like 11 years now. I've been in Basement of Talmud for about 13 years, 14 years. And, you know, I've mellowed considerably. When I first came, I was much more yeshivish than I am now. Much more. Because I was in yeshiva my whole life. So I would speak, you know, more yeshivish. And my hashkafas maybe were a lot, you know, 
more, you know, black and white. And then, you know, you mellow with age. But I'll tell you one thing. When I go back and I speak to my old friends, I suddenly become, I, I'm like looking at myself in the mirror. I'm like thinking, what, did you, what just happened? My wife notices it. It's like when you, when you, all of a sudden you're speaking to your old friends, you like change. You know, I become, I start speaking more yeshivish and I start acting like it. What happened? What happened is that there's many personalities within us. And we're not one person. We'd like to be one person. It would be great if we were one person. We don't want, we would like to have that consistency in ourselves. But the truth is that there are many people inside of us. There are many, many people inside of us that are all occupying the space of one body. Many personas, many personalities, many midas, many different, you know, attributes, different things are happening within us. And so we're multiple people. There's a Misa that's told about, there was a Hasidic Jew, and he lived in Warsaw. And he took a trip from Warsaw, and he went to Vilna. Now Vilna, going back, you know, 100, 200 years, Vilna was the, it was the, it was called Yerushalayim Delita. It was the Jerusalem of Lithuania because Vilna was like the ear of Aim Yisrael. It was like, it's hard to even say nowadays, you know, what it would be like. Uh, it's very hard to, to even, you know, nowadays we don't have such a thing, but it was like, it was the like capital of Lithuania in the Jewish world. So you had a lot of different, first of all, you have the, the Vilna Gaim, but even after it was Nifter, it's Talmidim, Learning was very, you know, pivotal. Everybody was, you know, very machshav in the city of Vilna, in the city of Vilna. There were many, many shuls. It wasn't like there was one or two shuls. There were maybe dozens of shuls in Vilna, each with a different stripe, with a different bent. And then there were a lot of Askala, unfortunately, crept into Vilna because when you have so many Jews, the influences there are going to spread with that. And and there was a lot of Haskala in Vilna as well. So a Yid from Warsaw, Hasidish Yid from Warsaw came to Vilna and he came back after that to Warsaw. And so a friend, the Hasidish friend, you know, asks this Yid that took a trip to Vilna, knew, tell me about Vilna. He says, Vilna is a place like no other. He says, what's so, what, what's so great about it? Tell me a little bit. I have never been there. So he said, I'll tell you what happened in Vilna. He says, he says, I had an ex- experience on Shabbos like I never had before. He says, on Shul, on Friday night I went to Shul, and I saw an old man, and he was davening with such kavana that he was crying. That's how much kavana he had. Even though it was Shabbos, he, he, he figured out a way that he was allowed to cry, and he was crying in his tefillahs on Shabbos Kaidesh. He says, then, after Shul, I went out in the street and I saw a man and he was smoking brazenly on Shabbos Kaidesh. He says, and then the next day I went back to Shul and there was an old man and he was giving the shear that was unbelievable, the lumdus and the gainus, unbelievable. I've never heard a shear like that in my life. He says, and then before Shalashudis, there was a man 
and he mocked Barabim. He was like a real masculine, and he, he was Barabim. And I never couldn't believe it. So this, and that's what I saw in Vilna, and that's, it amazed me. So this Yid says, yeah, okay, but you know, unfortunately we have a lot of that going on in Warsaw also. Warsaw also wasn't, you know, had, had a lot of different elements in it. So what, what's, what was so shocking about what you saw in Vilna? So he says, you're right. He says, we have Yechidim in Warsaw that are capable of doing all of those things. But in Vilna, it was the same exact person that I saw doing all those four things. The person that was crying by davening, I saw outside smoking after davening. And then he gave a brilliant cheer on Shabbos morning, and then he was mevazot to all the same person. That I never saw in my life. I never saw such a person in my life, that all in one. But that's what a human being is capable of. A human being is capable of being multiple personas in one. Sometimes we have these moments that we are on fire and we're davening and we're like from and we're learning and everything. We're so happy with the way we are. And then all of a sudden we could have this nafila and we could do the worst depravity. We could do the worst things that we could ever imagine and we feel guilty and we feel so bad. And then sometimes we're just, we're not from and we're not, not from, we're just sort of parrot. And then sometimes, you know, we're anti-from. And that's what we are. We have so much inside of us. And you call it what you want, but that's what a human being has. And that's a challenge for us. It doesn't mean that we're hypocrites. It just means that this is what the complex nature of the human being is. This is how the Rebbeinah made us. That we're not, unfortunately, one consistent robotic human being, but we're multiple people. And I think this shines a little bit of light about the Midah of Kas. The Gemara says in Erevin, There's three ways that a person can really see who he is. When a person is asked for a loan, when it comes to money matters, sometimes, you know, a person you thought was a really close friend of yours suddenly becomes, you know, a little distant and a little, little cold because when it comes to money, money sometimes could drive a wedge between people and it, it gives you a little insight into who the person is that you may never have seen before. Because when a person is drunk, a person is drunk, you know, a person is liable to say really, you know, crazy stuff. Many people, you know, they have, they sit together and they're, you know, they drink too much and then when they drink too much, you know, all bets are off. Everything is out in the open and starts saying things and the other person, you know, maybe was feigning being drunk but he really wasn't that drunk enough that he won't remember what the person said and you see a different side of the person. On Purim, on Purim, in the Purim shack, you know, you get to see, you know, I'm of course drunk but you know, but sometimes, you know, you're less drunk, more drunk, and, and not drunk, drunk is not a nice word, you know, you're, you're on a high level, and, but sometimes, you know, 
you see like a lot of times where Bachim are holding on Purim more than the rest of the year. Because on Purim you're able to see like a different, deeper persona. And sometimes, you know, very rarely, you know, guys act in an inappropriate way. But 99% of the time, 99% of the time, guys come to me and they, they want brachas and they want, you know, they, they're telling me their deepest she'ifas and what they want to be really and what they really want to, you know, that I really want to come to the shmuz and I really want to come to the bad and they just keep saying that over and over. I don't know if it's a confessional, maybe it's Yen Kippurim, you know, it's like a, they feel that it's time to, you know, to do tshuva or confess. But, but they're B'nai Taira, you know, deep down inside, sometimes you're embarrassed. I'm not talking about the guys here, you know, everybody knows that you're B'nai Taira. I'm talking about the guys that are not here. And those guys that you don't even know what to make of them, like on Purim, all of a sudden you start seeing that they really, they really want more. They're just Nebuch, they came back to America and they have challenges and different things are coming up at them and, you know, between college and family and whatever, and they're just not able to, to get back to their highest Madriga, but that's really what they want. That comes about through the Kaisa. But you could see it both ways. Sometimes Kaisa's, I was at a Chasna once of a Talmud. And I was at the rabbi table and, you know, beautiful chasna. This chasna was, like, magnificent. And each person, you know, it was probably at least $200 a person. White tea, it was, like, springtime. It was beautiful. I'm not going to say where it was, but it was, like, a beautiful place on the water. And white tablecloths, white flowers, white, everything was white and pure and perfect. And the food was magnificent. And I was speaking to, like, a, a Rosh Hashiva was sitting next to me and we were you know, talking deeply in a conversation and all of a sudden there was like screaming a few tables away and and I, I run over there and, and I knew the people at that table for whatever reason it was like Balabatim at that table and there was somebody that I knew very well, an older Balabas that I happened to know and he was sitting like over the table like this and on that white tablecloth, on that linen, beautiful white tablecloth, was like a pool of blood. And, and he was crying, and his wife was screaming. And what happened was that they were drinking, there was an open bar. And, you know, and they started having a conversation, these two husbands. And, and somebody said something in their state of inebriation, and, you know, that was not flattering to the other guy. The guy took his fist and punched him in the nose at the asthma. And it was Bekaisa. Bekaisa is able to bring out either, you know, to see whether you're a Bentaira or to see whether you're an Achser, whether you're, whether you're a Boer. Alcohol is a very, very powerful way of seeing, you know, what a person is. It's a very dangerous thing. And Bekaisai, when a person is angry, you see a different part of him, a different side of him. And a person is nicker with that. If you don't see a person in his anger, then you don't really know the person. I once was telling the guys around the table, we learn Archa Sadiqim in the morning after davening, everybody's invited to come. Um, but we're learning now Archa Sadiqim about the Shara Kas. So a lot of you know, we get a lot of inspiration, a lot of ideas from those morning chaburas. 
And I was telling the guys that I was, um, you know, I once read a shidduch to, to a guy in yeshiva and um, to a girl from that I knew. And I thought it was a great shidduch and it was going amazingly well. They went out once and they went out three times and five times and seven times. And I was already, like I told the guys, I was already counting my shadchanas. It was money in the bank. It was done. And... And one day, you know, they dropped the shots in a long time ago. They're already, like, cruising, cruising, you know. And she calls me one day, the girl, and she says, Herb Amberger, I'm sorry, but, you know, I'm not continuing. I said, what was, he was the greatest guy in the world. You know, everything was perfect. What happened? She said, well, yeah, but we were driving somewhere. And, uh, and, you know, we were you know, cruising on the FDR, everything was going smoothly, and then all of a sudden there was a traffic jam. And, you know, whatever, we had a reservation to get somewhere at a certain time, and, you know, now this was going to throw everything into a tizzy. So he slams on the steering wheel, this boy, he says, shoot! And I don't want to marry a guy with a temper. Was she wrong? Was she right? It's hard to say. But the point is that you know, on dating you don't really get to see all of the you know, all the sides of the other person because you don't have that much time. You know, Gayim are able to have, you know, years to, you know, really get to know one another and, you know, they you know they they, they know each other, you know, and they still get divorced at the end. But you know, Yidin, you have a couple of dates, you know, whether if you're Hasidish, you have a half an hour, and if you're Litvish, you have, you know, four dates, and if you're, you know, if you're a little bit, you know, less Litvish, whatever, you, you know, eight dates, ten dates, twenty dates, fifty, whatever you need, but you don't have unlimited time to, to, you know, to really get a feeling for who the person is. So you have to judge by, you know, these little, little things that you see. You have to sort of, you know, go with your gut and say, you know, what does this mean? And a person is nicker b'kaisai. I was once at a dinner, at a yeshiva dinner, and somebody said this Gemara, you know, that there's three things that a person's nicker, b'kisai, b'kaisai, b'kaisai, and he says, and I'm going to add a fourth one, uva karpulai. He says, when you're in the same carpool with a person, then, um, you know, you get to know a lot about the person also. It's true. Like, when you drive carpool, you know, you see the other people are coming out of their house and the, the kid is late and the kid's not dressed and there's fighting and there's this and there's that, you know. Or when they're picking you up, they're always late. You know, you, your kid wants to get to davening on time and the other people are not as yekish as you are. You get to see a lot of the, the person was speaking about, he was introducing a guy who was the guest of honor who was in his carpool. But there's different ways of a person that you're able to really detect the different personalities within. We all have a lot of personalities within. But these are ways that you're able to see. It brings out those personalities. It brings out those multiple beings that are occupying space within. And that's what Kas is. Kas is another personality. We have the regular us, and then we have us that's us when we're in a state of caste, the different personality. It's a split personality that we have. We have regular us and we have caste us. 
And when a person gets angry, that irrational, forget about the physiological change that takes place in the brain. What's really happening is that the other being inside of us that we're trying desperately to always contain has no choice but to jump out of us and to act in a way that it's literally an out-of-body experience. We can't stop that person. The person has a mind of his own and he doesn't stop. We know the better half of us, the better side of us says, just stop. I was telling the guys the other day, there was a mice that happened in yeshiva that I was very upset about. I very rarely get upset, but there was something that happened in yeshiva that really made me upset. And I, and I knew, I knew so well that I should just shut my mouth and not say anything. Because if I say something, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be good for, in general, it's not going to be good for me. And I literally, if you would have seen me that morning, I was like, literally like coming into the base madrash, and I was grabbing my lapel and, gra- and, and pulling myself out. I was trying desperately to contain myself from doing something that was self-destructive. Not that I was wrong. I was right. My, my father was right. But I knew that it was going to not be beneficial if I do it. I, it wasn't a violent thing. It was just a confronting a person and saying something that I feel is, you know, was right for yeshiva. And against my better judgment, that part of me that was fighting me, you know, and saying, no, we got to do it. We have to get out. We got to go and go and do it and you have to, you have to vent you got to express it, you got to communicate you got to confront it I knew that I shouldn't have but that person won the wrestling match and went and, and said it and it was like Mamish an out of body experience I, like, I, I was like coming along for the ride I didn't want to do it and I did it we did it and it was a disaster this, the amount of like of suffering that I, I endured because I did that was really overwhelming and I knew I shouldn't have done it. But it's a struggle between you and yourself, between those personas inside of you that are, who's going to be dominant? Is it the normal, rational me or is it the angry, irrational me? And there's a wrestling match. It's mamish a struggle, an epic, an epic battle between which persona wins. Is it the Chacham or the Rasha? Is it the Aish or is it the Upper? Which one is going to win? And part of me wants to say a Vard in this stipler that this Yisait is really part of what happened during Tzvardaya. What's going on with the Mak of Tzvardaya? Think about it. How does this happen? The Ahidits are day and it splits. I mean, we're so used to that notion since we're children, so it's it's like simple. It's like, yeah, it split. But how did that happen? It splits? Wasn't it? Like a, an amoeba, a paramecium, like if you cut it in half and it'll split into a frog. If I take a frog and I and I and I cut it in two, it's de- two dead parts of a frog. What does it mean? It suddenly becomes two frogs? Okay, so it's a nace. But I think that what it really was, the fact that the frog was splitting out of the anger of the Egyptians was a reflection of the Egyptians in their state of anger. The Egyptians in their state of anger had a split personality. There was themselves the the part of them that knew that this is ridiculous to do. But there was that other Egyptian inside of them that said, we got to do it. 
and there was this split between them. There was a major schism between them. Should we do it or should we not do it? And they did it. And the frogs split in two as if to say, you are two separate people. Look at you. Now you're showing a different panim of yours. There's panim chadashas baalotan. There's a new panim. I didn't see this in you before. You were supposed to be a very sophisticated, civilized Egyptian. And now you're acting like a behemoth. You're acting irrationally. The splitting frogs represents, this is kas. Kas makes you from one person into two people, from two people into four people, until you're in such danger, because you don't even know who you are anymore. That's what kas is. Kas is the most dangerous trait, not just because it's irrational, but because it takes us away from who we really want to be. We want to be that one person, that unified being. And when we feel cast, we're suddenly divided into two. And a yid is supposed to be one person. At the end of the day, with all of the disclaimers, with all of the saying that it's human, you know, to be, to, to have taivas, and it is. And that it's human to be lazy once in a while, and it is. And it's human to act in different ways depending on where you are and what situation with all of your friends, with your Abbe. And obviously that's part of who we are. We can't change the human condition. But we have to try as best we can to be as singular, to be as one as possible. And that's a very big challenge. That is the challenge of our lives. To try to find some consistency within because when we're not consistent, we have multiple people running around, we don't even know anymore who we are. And when we don't know who we are, it creates confusion, it creates depression, it makes life very complicated. The people that are happiest in life are the people that have a clear identity of who they are and what they want, and if they change once in a while, that's an aberration, but it's not acceptable norm. Kas is something that's so destructive, not just for its the aftermath, which is sometimes really, really bad, but it's really destructive because it takes us away from that one human being that we're proud of and that we're happy. And it, it introduces us to our alter ego, which is somebody that we really are trying and need desperately to contain within. May the Abishta give us the Kayach and the Chachma to be able to do this battle against ourselves and to constrain ourselves and to restrain ourselves that we're faced with these moments these moments of cast, these moments of, of anger and wrath that we have sometimes more, sometimes less often, but it's there when we're able to stop ourselves when we're able to count to ten when we're able to say this is not going to be good in the future so don't do it if we're strong enough to contain ourselves then we're heroic. And we'll be proud of ourselves. And we'll be able to live with ourselves. Because we have shown that we are truly one person. And that we have a unified front. And that we're able to be stronger than our inner drive. And that's the greatest kaburi. If you're able to put down your yetzer, to be, to act out in ways that are not acceptable, 
that shows great Gevura. It's Hashem, we should have that strength, that inner strength, that conviction to fight the good fight and to Mirza Hashem be over ourselves. We should have a wonderful Shabbat.